Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Karen Henson, and this is episode two of Solo Hosting. Yeah. <laughs> Our guest today, who is back in the studio with us, is Dr. Nathan Wagner. What up? Welcome, welcome. Thank you. It's such a privilege to be on your podcast, Karen. <laughs> I've been a longtime listener and fan of yours. I appreciate that. Yeah. That shows dedication. I think my favorite is all of the nicknames that you've been given. And who gave me those nicknames? Some other guy. That guy. It's amazing. Awesome. <laughs> We're glad you're back with us. Last week we started talking about just the project that you've spent the last few years working on, your doctoral degree and people's God image and how that relates to your spiritual formation. And so... This episode, we're going to dig down into the details. And if you listen to the last one, you're going, oh, no. (laughs) More details? Oh, my gosh. So last week, we talked a lot about the theology behind people's God image, how our uh, childhood years from zero to 18 influence the way that we view God, our attachment figures, Mm -hmm. and how they influence it. So give us a quick recap of some of what we talked about last week so we can jump into the details of your assessment. Yeah, I mean, mainly just that each of us are formed deeply in our formative years, kind of the birth to 18, where we are in close proximity with our primary attachment figures, which most of the time is our parents, like the vast majority of people that's your parents. And during that time, we form patterns of behavior based on how we relate to those people. And that forms a foundation for how we think about the ultimate attachment figure who is God. So think of it like, uh, you have a psychological lens that you view God through, and there's a lot of spillover from your parents. So you might have the best and most accurate creedal theology, but functionally, the baggage from your attachment environment keeps you from experiencing what you intellectually believe to be true. Mm. So that's the tension that's created. It keeps people from really experiencing the love of God, which is the whole point, which is why I think this research is really going to help the church. Unfortunately, a lot of churches have assessments to measure the health of their body, which I think are great. I mean, those things are great to a point. I mean, uh, they do measure something. And I think the people who are doing those things like should be commended because they're going, hey, I'm trying to figure this out, you know? So props to you for, for if you're listening to this and you have an assessment like that. It's good. However, if the assessment that we do have focuses almost solely on things we believe intellectually, things we do practically, how we relate to one another from an external standpoint, like I didn't beat my wife and kick my dog, you know, then that does tell you something. But if you're looking at that as a sole indicator of spiritual maturity, that's very reductionistic. And so if we like have an assessment that says, hey, I read my Bible every day and I go to church every week and I'm I in a community group. I'm in a community group. Believe I believe all the right things. Yep. I believe I can affirm your doctrinal statement. Therefore, I equal a mature Christian. You're saying, hey, that's flawed. What I'm saying is congratulations. You're a Pharisee. <laughs> uh, you're welcome to our listeners. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's like if a Pharisee can pass with flying colors the assessment that you have, that's a problem. So how is your assessment different? When I looked at this issue and was like, okay, number one, 
this is not going to be really popular. <laughs> That's <proven> for, true. <laughs> for a handful of reasons. And one of them is, is because it's very difficult to do. I think one of the things that we take solace in, in kind of an information age is quantitative data. So we want somebody to develop a measure or, a, or an instrument that's going to give us cold, hard data that we can put into a spreadsheet and show a line graph that's up and to the right. That's what we want. But that's not how the spiritual life works, like, at all. And what are we going to do? Stand before Jesus in the kingdom and present him a spreadsheet? We would like that. Yeah, no. <laughs> he would crumple it up and throw it in the trash. Like, no. Because it's very difficult. Actually, I think it's impossible to get quantitative data out of a qualitative method. Because the spiritual life is so intensely personal, then you have to measure it qualitatively. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is more subjective, which means instead of giving somebody a form and saying, hey, fill this out, which immediately, immediately your data set is tainted. Even if you have a, a God image question, they're answering it from a conceptual standpoint. They're continuing to suppress the emotional pain they experience in their relationship with God, and they're just giving you the quote-unquote right answer. Like, Scripture says this, I know this to be true, I can't believe something else. Totally, yeah. My emotional experience can't be wrong, Right. so this is the right answer. Yeah. If somebody's being brutally honest, they'll say, yeah, I don't emotionally experience this, but so what? This is the truth. And when you see stuff like that, that's when you're seeing the disparity between somebody's God concept, which is their kind of explicit, intellectual, rational side, and their God image, which is their holistic, experiential, emotional side. And ideally, for a healthy person, those two things are well integrated with one another. In somebody who is less healthy, there's a pretty good amount of angst and, and separation between those two. So what does your assessment look like if it's not pen and paper answer yeah. these questions? Yeah. So the best way to measure uh, somebody's God image is you have to have multiple instruments in the assessment. What I mean by an instrument is just like a, an exercise or something that's going to try to get at what you're trying to get at. And all of them have to be taken live in the room with another human being. Physically together. Physically together. Yeah. So the only part of it that's not is a pre-assessment family background questionnaire that I send out the night before the assessment. And that basically just digs into family history, which is a critical element in all of this. And so people can fill that out wherever they are. Online, got a form for it, awesome. When they show up, then the instruments that I've developed which I didn't like make this stuff up out of thin air. I mean, I, I took existing instruments that other people have used and tweaked them or, or shaped them a certain way to what I'm trying to use it for. And then some of them are based on actually very ancient things that people in the church have done for a long time. Which most people just don't know about it. So anyway, what I try to do is use these instruments so that I can look at the person's God image from multiple viewpoints and in order to do that, then it just it just has to be a multifaceted assessment. So you've gone through it. My name is Guinea Pig Karen. <laughs> yeah, Guinea Pig. Yeah, Karen was my guinea pig and all of this. But when you begin to unpack it after the assessment, 
then that's when a lot of these, hey, we're looking at it from this way, and then let's look at it from this way, and let's look at it from this way. And you begin to see this kind of mosaic surface out from somebody's subconscious. And it's my job as the person who's leading them through this to help them connect the dots. So for me, it's a lot, a lot of listening and paying very close attention, not just to what people are saying, but how they're saying it is really critical and not just like leaving that there. I'm, I'll, I'll stop them and be like, hey, hang on. You mm. just said something that was really interesting. Did you know that you said this or that you said it like this? And those are uh, really powerful, just holy moments where the Holy Spirit, maybe for the first time ever, is showing people, hey, this is the way that you viewed me for a long time. And I'm telling you, that's not the way I am. Yeah. Yeah. That's really transformative. Because then people can see God is love and then they begin to experience it. Mm -hmm. And that will radically change your life. And so if I'm to summarize some of what you've talked about over the last few minutes with your assessment, what you're driving towards is trying to unearth people's God image because 99% of the time they're unaware of how they're imaging God and how it's different from the God who is portrayed in the scriptures. Yeah, totally. It's, I mean, their God image for the vast majority of people, I don't know if it's a 99% or it wouldn't <laughs> surprise me if it is, but whatever it is, their God image is almost entirely unexamined. They don't even question it. I mean, it's just assumed that because I think or feel this way, that must be the way God is. Mm. And I'm going, wait a minute. No. no. <laughs> You're wrong. There's a bunch of different things that shape the way that we view God. I mean, not least of which is what we've been talking about. Your formative experiences in your primary attachment environment, culture, other people, other people's God image spilling over onto your God image and shaping it. And then we also believe, and I think rightly so, there's an enemy in the middle of all of this mm. who's actively moving. And dadgum, man, he's got plenty of cannon fodder <laughs> to use as a playground to convince you that God is not love right? or that he's somebody that's demanding or he's somebody that is keeping score or he's a grandfather in the sky or he's somebody who's disappointed in you or he's somebody who's looking at you going, dadgummit, I knew you were going to mess up again. And all of that stuff is just a lie. Yeah. It's a lie. The scriptures are very clear that Yahweh is a person who creates out of love. He engages out of love. He saves out of love. He's long suffering with us because he loves us. And he doesn't just love us. He likes us. He didn't make a masterpiece and then be like, ah, it's okay. He creates a masterpiece and goes, oh my gosh. In Hebrew, it's that's tov tov. It's good, good. It's really good. It's very good. Yeah. And our image of God most of the time is based on painful experiences that we've had with attachment figures. It's based on a lot of things that make it very easy for the enemy to slip in and go, hey, God is not good and he doesn't love you. And it's easy for us to believe it. Oh, it's so easy. Yeah. So easy. And I uh, personally didn't even know I was believing it until I was able to have somebody point it out and then look back at my actions. Yeah, you raise it to the yeah. level of awareness and then you look at it. And I mean, it's a very disorienting experience as well. Yeah. Disorienting is probably the best word that you could attach to it. Yeah. Walking through the assessment, like I pridefully so would have walked in and been like, 
seminary graduate, graduated it. with honors. Like, <laughs> yeah. I know all the right answers. I'm going to ace this test. Like, been a believer since I was six. Yeah. Do all the disciplines. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to crush, crush this, it. this assessment. I write curriculum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm curriculum Karen. It's super arrogant. <laughs> Gosh. But really, though, I, I was thinking, oh, that this is, is going to awesome. be no big deal. And as I continue to walk through these assessments with you, I realized for the first time that I did not believe that God loved me. Mm -hmm. And it's not something I ever would have said before walking through a lot of what you've created, but being able to look at my own life and realize I am only doing these disciplines because I think I'm supposed to. Mm -hmm. And because if I don't, God will be disappointed with me. And so knowing that that was my motivation helped me see that I wasn't truly mm-hmm. believing in God's mm-hmm. love. Yeah. And so it was really disorienting because I walked in your office thinking I'm good. And I walked out going, my life's falling <laughs> apart. <laughs> what did you just do to yeah. me? <laughs> but it wrecked me in yeah, the best yeah, yeah. possible way. Yeah. And now I can look at that and say, okay, God, show me who you really are. Mm-hmm. If I'm not actually believing this, show me who you really are. Yeah. Well, that's the beautiful thing that comes out of this is The Holy Spirit is the one who is blowing up your false images of God. We're really creative when it comes to our psychological defensive maneuvers to keep us emotionally safe. We don't want to be emotionally vulnerable. We put up walls. We're self-protective. Yeah, especially if we believe God to be somebody who's dangerous Mm. or demanding or unresponsive, right? then we'll put up all kinds of barriers. C.S. Lewis calls them watchful dragons. You know, They kind of stand as sentries over your emotions to keep you safe. But in that safety where you're not vulnerable with God, you begin to wither away mm-hmm. You know, because you're not substantively plugged into the life source. That doesn't mean you're not saved. It doesn't mean – because ultimately what the, what the Holy Spirit is doing is the Holy Spirit is coming up from behind, right. from underneath – and he's going, hey, I want, now you're ready for me to show you this. And it goes in stages. I mean, one of the fascinating things for me to think about right now is as I've experienced a measure of transformation through this project, I'm also very keenly aware that I still have false images of God. I'm not done yet. No, you're not done yet. Yeah. And the reality of it is, is I will always have a psychological representation of God because I'm a human being with a brain that God gave me. And God is objectively real. So from a theological standpoint, what's crazy is um, they call this the inscrutability of God is that my psychological projection of him will constantly be learning more information and growing and being destroyed and reformed by the Holy Spirit and will never get to the end of God. Like there will never be a point where our psychological projection of God is actually the fullness of who God is. That's crazy. That hurts my brain. (laughs) (laughs) But I would say like the deeper you move into the love of God, which is why Paul says in in, uh, Ephesians 3, which is how I've ended all the post-assessment interviews with people as they're sitting there going, uh, I'm like, hey, this is a really critical moment for me to reinforce the fact that God is love. He loves you. He doesn't just love you through gritted teeth. He delights in you. He likes you and wants to be with you. Uh, Like that's the whole point. Mm. And Paul says, I pray 
that you would be strengthened in your inner being. That's cool, right? So that you would, together with all the saints, be able to grasp how high and long and wide and deep is the love of Christ. And then he says something really amazing. He says, and for you to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I think Paul understood it. (laughs) What is that? How do you know something that you can't know? You know what I'm saying? Mm. How do you do that? And I, I think on some level, Paul had been pushed by the Holy Spirit into a space where his experience of God was outrunning his capacity to mentally categorize it. And so you're left without words, you know. In a really good way. Totally. <laughs> yeah. You're alive. Your mind is awake. Your experiences are are quickened. And you're standing before a God who is incomprehensible and you're standing squarely in the middle of the love of God. It's the gospel. I mean, I think that's what heaven is, right? Mm. So help make this a little bit more practical for those listening. So I get the privilege of sitting across from you and walking through this assessment and seeing what my God image is and Mm. being spiritually formed to know God's love in a deeper way. What does this have to do with the church? What does this have to do with our listeners? What are steps that they can take? Yeah, I think that there's probably a big need for us to recover a solid biblical theology of spiritual formation. A lot of the stuff that we're talking about today, probably a lot of our listeners are just hearing this for the very first time. That's tragic. I mean, we need to talk about these things. You know, as I was researching this, one of the things that it's actually a line in my paper where I said, all of this stuff is suspiciously hidden. It's almost like there's some sort of power out there that doesn't want this to been buried. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, And so I think that there is a sense in the church where we need a a renaissance of sorts of, of spiritual formation. And then I think, too, there are a lot of training opportunities that are coming up. One of them is taking our community directors through this assessment. And we're, we're trying to see how we can scale this to where we can make it available you know, to the members in our body. And as we develop that, then I think ultimately it would be really nice to see something come out of it that we can ultimately train other churches to do so that this can become – you know, it, it seems kind of crazy right now, but I don't know why for this to become a, a common conversation. Yeah. You know? So first step is awareness, which yep. check. You just listen to these two podcasts. Next step is, hey, if you're interested in learning more, are there any other tools, study tools where people, their interest has been piqued that they can read or listen to? The most common question I get for people who go through the assessment is, uh, it actually just happened yesterday, where it's like, well, what do I do? How do I fix it? That was my question. (laughs) Like, what do I do about this? Which I think betrays the fact that we live in a very formulaic Christianity, like this plus this equals this. And it's like, eh, that's not the way that God works, (laughs) you know? It's a lot more like this plus I don't know what that is and what is that over there? And somehow I'm like moving along. And the reality of it is, is it's much more like 
you getting onto a surfboard and just hanging on for dear life and the ocean is carrying you along mm. you know it's like someone trying to explain the power of the ocean like good luck with that you know especially when you're on a surfboard riding a wave so i think that the hanging on portion is like what do you do and the answer is you just sit and pray a lot and talk to god about the experiences and emotions that come through your head. I think if people are brutally honest with themselves, I think most people would say a lot of what goes through their head and their heart would scare them if they really were honest about it. Mm. But I think the Holy Spirit is going, hey, that's the stuff that I want to deal with. And I know it's there. I know it's there way better than you do. So right. let's talk about it. Let's stop suppressing our emotions. I'm not mad at you. Mm. I am the loving surgeon who's trying to cut out a disease. And you got to trust me, you know, but for so many people, trust with their attachment figures was not their experience. And so it's very difficult for them to take that step. That doesn't mean it can't be taken. It can. Uh, there's actually a fifth category of attachment uh, that's called earned secure attachment. And it's somebody who's insecurely attached and they do the hard work of digging, of sitting, of waiting, and they actually through their effort and the grace of God, which are not exclusive of one another, earn a secure attachment with God. And it's not like the Lord is going, ha, I'm going to make you earn it. No, he wants this to happen. Mm. So he's facilitating it. And uh, there's some great resources. Uh, one that I recommend to people a lot is by Brother Lawrence called The Practice of the Presence of God. I think that's just good to like, it's short. You can just sit in it. And I think it's really good. Another one that I'm actually have just moved through is by John of the Cross called uh, The Living Flame of Love, which is also amazing. We've done a podcast with Kurt Thompson in the past on his book, Anatomy of the Soul. He talks about a lot of this stuff. So there's stuff out there for sure. And uh, anybody that actually wants to read my paper, or at least like portions of it, is, is welcome to do that. So if you're interested in that, email us at equippingpodcast <laughs> at watermark.org. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so. Totally. Can I ask you one last question? Yep. So, Dr. Wagnon, what have you learned? What's the one lesson you want to leave people with through your years of study? It's a good question. I've got a really short answer, but I'm going to take a minute to get there. <laughs> so unlike you. Yeah. I think that there are a lot of reasons for this, but we as human beings typically have a very difficult time believing that we're loved or that we're a lovable. Again, I think that's suspicious, right? Because the very essence of who God is, is love. And the very essence of sin is our separation from the love of God, whose God is love. And our ongoing rebellion at the heart of that is our movement, both active and passive, our continual movement away from a God who's pursuing us. And so I think that sometimes we get a glimpse of God's love. Sometimes I describe it as like a, a ray of light that breaks through the clouds on a rainy day or something like that, you know, where it's like there and you see it and you're like, oh yeah, the sun is shining, even though it's raining all around me. And then it's gone. And you're like, whoa, that was cool. But then uh, it's raining. And I think that what the Holy Spirit is doing is he is uh, reforming us 
reparenting us in a lot of ways to rest in the fact that we, against all other things in our minds that are telling us differently, that we are loved and that we are lovable and that God doesn't love us through gritted teeth. Like he delights in us. He loves us. And when we encounter that kind of divine love, we recoil from it because we think it's too good to be true. Mm. We'll reach out and touch it and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because everything inside of us is, is deeply formed to react that way. And yet it's that moment when we feel like it's too good to be true. That's the point where you're just beginning to scratch the surface of it. And again, that's very difficult for us to believe, but that is where God is taking us. The only thing that transforms the human heart is the love of God. Mm. That's it. And until the love of God becomes not just an, a cognitive belief, but a, an emotional experience, you're not going to mature as a Christian. I don't care how busy you, you are, what amazing things you do. It's just not going to be a reality for you. And so the way that John of the Cross ends the living flame of love, I'm going to read a little bit here from his book. But he talks about when you encounter the love of God, it's like you wake up. That's cool, right? <laughs> like you've been asleep for a long time and you've been living in a bad dream and you wake up from it and you're, you realize that, wait a minute, all of that stuff or a vast majority of that stuff that was, was a dream, it wasn't real. It was a lie. And John of the Cross talks about this waking up and he's talking about this union with God. And he says, in this awakening of the bridegroom in the soul, all is perfect because he affects it all himself in the way that I've spoken of. He's, he's been talking about this union with Christ. In this awakening, as of one aroused from sleep and drawing breath, so picture in your mind kind of that, that first conscious breath that you have when you wake up, that he says, the soul feels the breathing of God. So like the first thing you experience when you wake up is the breath of God, which for married folks out there, I know when you wake up and you're laying next to the person who you're the most intimate with, then you either feel their breath or you feel them breathing. It's a very restful, close, intimate experience. And he says this, I would not speak of this breathing of God, neither do I wish to do so because I am certain that I cannot. And indeed, were I to speak of it, it would seem then to be something less than what it is in reality. This breathing of God is in the soul. In the awakening of the deep knowledge of the divinity, he breathes the Holy Spirit according to the measure of that knowledge which absorbs it most profoundly, which inspires it most tenderly with love according to what it saw. This breathing is full of grace and glory, and therefore the Holy Ghost fills the soul with goodness and glory, whereby he inspires it with the love of himself, transcending all glory and all understanding." 
And that is the reason why I say nothing more. I think what he's saying is when the love of God begins to be your reality, then you realize that God is not just somebody that you interact with over there. He's actually in you and he's breathing in you and he's delighting in you and he's drawing you deeper into the divine life. That is the love of God. And that breathing of God is close, intimate, secure, and that he's making you into somebody that you would never have dreamed of. I would say this, that what I've learned through this is that I think in the breathing of God in my life, I have more and more and more come to experience the reality that God is smiling. That's pretty beautiful and not what I expected. (laughs) That he's delighting. Yeah. That he is pleased. That he's pleased, yeah. It's not because of anything I've done. It's just because I'm his handiwork. Mm. I'm his masterpiece. And he loves us so much that he died for us. I mean, come on, man. Like, let that sit on you for a while. I mean... If he wanted to throw you away or discard you, he would have done it, but he didn't. He went through links that we'll never fully understand in order to come get us again, to convince us of what is actually real, and that is that we're loved and that we're lovable. And he doesn't just love us, he likes us. And I think that I would say that I've started to scratch the surface of that. But again, like we said, I have a long way to go. Don't we all? Yeah. (laughs) Well, Nathan, thank you so much for the hard work that you put into this project. And I can say it's impacted me and I'm confident that it'll impact the church. And just like you said, we have a really hard time believing that God is love and that he loves us. And Mm -hmm. I think. But he does. Yep. Through your hard work, (laughs) we're going to get a little bit closer. So thank you for being our star guest this time on the Equipping (laughs) Podcast. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's a little weird, but hopefully it'll help. (laughs) 